You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Uh, We are in chapter 8, verse 12 of Romans. And as you get there, why don't you go ahead and stand and we'll read through uh, verse 29 together. Oh, good question. Who has a pew Bible and knows what page it's on? I know there's others out there. It's funny, I've been listening to pastors lately who tell the pew Bible number, and I'm like, I should start doing that. Figures. <laughs> so Romans chapter 8, we're at verse 12, where it says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this section uh, that will give us a biblical perspective, a biblical understanding of suffering, And, Lord, this section that will just really transform our lives. Lord, we know that there are many in this room right now that are suffering just in a very real way, Lord. Just things that that I can't even begin to address in my flesh. But as we just read, just the Spirit is, is the one who searches the hearts and knows the minds. Lord, you know the grief and the pain and the anguish and the anxiety, the worrying, the fear, 
that's in this place. And we just all pray together that you would comfort those that need comforted, Lord. You would give courage to those who need courage. And Lord, that by the Spirit, you would work in us joy in the midst of chains, joy in the midst of hardship, triumph in the midst of just pressure and pain. And and Lord, that you would be glorified in the way that we suffer. Do a work that could only be attributed to your Holy Spirit in the way that you just heal and comfort in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. As we've been studying uh, verse by verse through the book of Romans, uh, we've looked in depth at chapters 1 through 5, which show us you know, the depravity of man, that there is none good, no, not one. And there's not one gal or guy who can earn or work their way to heaven that in and of themselves have some kind of innocence. Or, or anything that's worthy of merit that God should owe them eternity in heaven or God would owe them forgiveness of sin. But we see that the individual is justified or declared innocent in the courtroom of heaven, not by works, but by grace. Not by works that they've done, sweat or sweat equity in the heavens, but rather by the work that Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection, even in his ascension and his glorious homecoming into the heavens, by grace we're given the gift of innocence. By by a free gift, we're given a, a gavel slam in heaven that says, you have no sin. You have no sin associated with your name. You are justified. Justified is a glorious legal term that every Christian loves because they know it's applied to them by grace through faith. So it's by grace, it's by this gift that's received through faith, through trust, through belief, through resting in what Jesus has done. And so we know that that innocence, that forgiveness is given not by works, but by grace through faith. Then chapters 6 through 8 begin the section in the book of Romans that deals with our not justification anymore, but a new word, sanctification. And sanctification speaks of the lifelong process in the Christian where the Lord is conforming us into the image of his Son. He's purging out worldliness and sin and addiction and habits and day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, we're being made more like Jesus. And that won't be complete until the day we see Jesus face to face. And it can't come soon enough, can it? <laughs> but in the midst of this sanctification process that's, that goes on throughout our life, chapters 6 through 8 tell us that it's not by works now, as if, you know, well, we, we made it by faith, you know, we, we were saved by faith, but now we're going to make it by our hard works and determination. And Galatians 3.3 tells us, no, it's still not by that. That's foolishness. We received the Spirit by faith, and we're going to continue on by faith. Moment by moment by moment, we have faith and we trust in the Lord, and His Spirit gives us the strength to be set apart from this world. So we didn't begin in the flesh and we're not gonna continue on in the flesh. We began in the spirit and we're gonna continue on 
by grace, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 talks about how when we have the Holy Spirit in us, we're going to be killing sin in our life, mortifying sin. Whenever we start to see a weed of sin creeping up in our lives, the Holy Spirit's going to take the spade or the shovel, you know, and just, you know, whip that sin out by the root, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And verse 14 tells us that anyone who is led by the Spirit of God, specifically in dealing with their sin, can know, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. And then that led us into the last week that we studied this two weeks ago, that we are sons of God by the Spirit. We received this adoption that's taken place in the heavens, where we're not slaves anymore, but we're sons and we're daughters. We're legitimate children of God, a work that's been worked out by the Holy Spirit in our lives, an adoption that's been signed, sealed, and delivered by Jesus. We're sons and daughters if we're in Christ. And we have this sweet, intimate relationship by where we cry out to him, Abba, Father. One of the most intimate words that's used in the, in the Arabic language, Abba, Daddy. Since we taught on this a couple weeks ago, I've noticed it more and more. Having been in Israel about a month ago and hearing, you know, kids say that out to their dad, Abba, 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 and kicking soccer balls to dad and dad turning around and, and playing with their kid. I've been noticing my own son, you know, you'll notice him today. He's got the big angry birds hat on, okay, and the big angry pig, you know, on his shirt. You know, that's, that's Russell, but just daddy, you know. Daddy, daddy, trying to get my attention. And I'm just loving the little age, you know, right now. I know that someday it's going to be like, dad, pops, whatever, old man. You know, right now we've still got the daddy thing going on. And I'm loving it. And every time he says it, I'm just reminded of that close, close, deep relationship that we have with God. Those who've been adopted can call him daddy, can call him Abba. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He's the witness that the adoption has taken place. And verse 17, and if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We're not going to finish out the sentence yet. If we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, Since we're the children of the king, we have the inheritance of the king, an inheritance of a prince. But you want to know what the greatest part of this inheritance is? You want to know what the greatest part of being an heir is? It's Jesus. He's really the, he is the pillar. He is the foundation of our inheritance. Jesus is the prize. As you read Hebrews chapter 12, you know, you read of this race that we're in as Christians. And in the midst of the race, we're to keep our eyes on the prize. We're to keep our eyes on the finish line. And who does the author of Hebrews say is the finish line? Who's the finish line? It's Jesus. He's the prize. He's who we look to. He's who we lay aside every weight and every burden and every sin that so easily ensnares us so that we can run the race that's been set before us with endurance, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. 
Yes, he's preparing great things for us in heaven, but Jesus is the prize. And if you get your eyes on anything else, if you, if you get just that deep hope to anything else, being like a pro snowboarder in heaven, you know, or, or finally getting to ride a unicorn, you know, then you've become an idolater. I'm not sure they'll be there, but you become an idolater. You put something as better than Jesus. And so knowing that we're heirs, man, keep your hope on the prize. That prize is Christ. We are heirs. And I kind of like that there's this pause there when he says it in verse 17. If we're children, then heirs, dash, line, pause for effect. Think about it. There should be a gasp within our heart. There should be you know, some excitement stirred within us during that pause, during that short dash in verse 17, because we are heirs of God. That means that we are legally receiving all that is God's. I know I had you think about it two weeks ago and I had you pretend and make some funny like, yay, you know, but really think about it. Legally, through the courtrooms of heaven, through the work of the gospel and God redeeming us to himself, through Jesus taking our sin upon him on the cross, this work has taken place for all who would believe that they are adopted into the sonship of God and they are heirs. Legally, all that is God's becomes theirs. Notice the language here. We are heirs of God, right? So all that is God's becomes ours. Heirs of God. But notice we are heirs with Christ. So the Son of God has his inheritance coming to him. And yet by grace, by love, this son, this prince saw all of those paupers down there on earth destined on a fast track to hell. And he says, you know what? I'm willing to give my life for those impoverished, spiritually poor, depraved people. And I not only want to redeem them and save them from hell, but I want to give them all that I have. I want to give them all that I have coming to me. As the obedient son, I want to give them my obedience. As the innocent son, I want to give them my innocence. And as the wealthy son, I want to give them my wealth. As you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it's written that I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love them. Does that sound exciting to you guys? I know some of you have seen some great things. If you've been to Maui, you know, I mean, you have an idea of paradise in mind. You know, if you've been and been upon the mountains and just seen the beautiful sisters, I mean, you're like, man, heaven's got to be something like this. And Paul would tell us, You've never even seen anything that comes close to the splendor of heaven. Your ear has never heard it. Your, your heart, you try to imagine what heaven's going to be like. You can't even imagine how glorious 
this place is that God has prepared. You'll notice that the clause there in verse, 1 Corinthians 2.9, the clause is that it's for those who love him. The same clause is found in Romans 8.28, and we'll get there today. This reward, this prize, this inheritance, this glory, it's for those that love God. You read some more of this great place in Revelation 21 and 22, the last couple chapters of the Bible, where we see the new heaven and the new earth, which I, in my studies, I'm coming to believe that it's not going to be like an obliteration of this heaven and earth to where this doesn't exist. And then this new one, it's like something completely, totally. But what I believe is that God is going to take what has been corrupted and he is going to make it new. Through fire, yes, as Peter says, but he is going to transform this heaven and earth to be like a garden of Eden once again. And I think he's going to do it in the same way that he's going to do it to our bodies. Our bodies that are going to be sown in corruption. Some bodies that have, you know, thousands of years ago died and been eaten by worms and nothing's left. But the Bible says that there's going to be a resurrection of those bodies and that those that are in Christ will be raised incorruptible. They'll be given a new glorious body. And I believe that that's just what the Lord's going to do to this heaven and this earth. There's some controversy about that. Whatever, you know, I'm not going to like die for it. But I I have hope that God's going to redeem all things to himself, like Ephesians 1 says. And so it's an exciting time in Revelation to read of this war-torn, pollution-filled world being made better than new again. And the new city, and and it says that it's the city of God, Jerusalem, it's the same city is going to come down, it's going to be brought, and it's going to be full of splendor. And if you're in Revelation 21, and I'll have the verses come up, uh, verses 15 and 16, we see this new city... And this angel that talked to John had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. It says that the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its height and its breadth. And he measures the city with a reed. 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and its height are all equal. So the new Jerusalem sitting there on Mount Zion is this giant cube, okay? Nothing's more exciting, right? Okay, listen to this. So the city is a a cube, and its length is an eighth of a mile, or excuse me, it says that it is um, 12,000 furlongs, okay? Now, a furlong is an eighth of a mile, and its length is 12,000 furlongs, okay? So the length of this city is 1,500 miles. It's a city. So the length of the city, 1,500 miles. The breadth of the city, 1,500 miles. The height of the city, 1,500 miles. So the new Jerusalem is 3.375 trillion miles cubed. Okay? That's how big this inheritance, and this is just part of it. That's how big this city is. Right now, our earth only has 49 million habitable square miles, okay? Uh, Here's what Sandy Adams says. If the upper right-hand corner of this city sat in Boston, 
Then the other three corners would land in Miami, Phoenix, and Calgary, Canada. The city would cover about three quarters the area of the United States. This is a city two and a quarter million square miles, but the most mind-boggling dimension is its height. It's also 1,500 miles high. Consider that today the Earth's atmosphere extends only 600 miles. That means if it sat down on the Earth today, the New Jerusalem would extend 900 miles into outer space. More of it would be above the atmosphere than below it. The size of the New Jerusalem would be just a little smaller than the moon. Imagine, too, a city with 3D living space. Its inhabitants live not just at the base, but throughout the structure. This increases its living area to 3 billion square miles, more than enough for the saved throughout all the ages. Kind of exciting, huh? You know, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back, and you're going to get to see what I'm preparing. It's awesome. Dr. Henry Morris says, having done the math, concluding that given the possibility of 20 billion residents, each person will enjoy a block of space of approximately one cubic mile, or its length, breadth, and height would be a little over a third of a mile in each direction. And Tim LaHaye, really the source on eschatology. No, I'm kidding, but he does have the Left Behind series. Uh, Tim LaHaye says, can you imagine the view from your apartment house overlooking the holy city and extending as far as the eye can see from an elevation of 1,500 miles? So just a little bit of a taste of just what the New Jerusalem is going to be like, okay? And we don't want to get our eyes on the New Jerusalem, but the most fantastic thing about Revelations 21 and 22 is that the, the presence of the Lord is going to be with man. We're going to be there with God. We're going to see Jesus face to face. There's not going to be a sun or a moon anymore because we won't need it for light. The Lamb will be our light. And so, Thinking about our inheritance, thinking about the kingdom that presently is already happening and, and the tension, you know, that it's not yet all the way. Presently already, but not yet. Man, we just long for the, the coming of Jesus and for him to set up his kingdom, for us to be with our father in his presence and to tangibly be able to see it with our eyes, to know him just as we are known, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. And so while there's this beauty in Romans chapter 8 of sonship, being adopted, sons and daughters, intimacy, relationship, and inheritance, we do see the clause at the end of verse 17 that this is for you if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. So we're heirs of God, joint heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we might be glorified together. Just as Jesus, who is our author and finisher of our faith, who is the captain of our salvation, as Hebrews says, just as he suffered and then entered into his glory, the disciple is not above his master. 
the disciple will also suffer before glory comes in. A secular source that I read this morning was a report presented at American Association for Public Opinion Research. And this man, uh, Ronald Anderson, did this report on what is suffering. And to just quote him a little bit, he said, Colloquial definitions of suffering emphasize pain, distress, sorrow, and grief, primarily from a psychological point of view. In common and scholarly usage, suffering encompasses mild unpleasantness all the way up to excruciating torture and intense agony. Would you guys say we've switched gears a little bit here? Sonship, daddy, inheritance, agony, and torture, okay? Um, Hey, can't have one without the other. (laughs) We get the inheritance, we get the glory, if indeed we suffer. Sociologist Wilkinson in 2010 opens his book on the sociology of suffering with this observation. The problem with suffering is that it involves us in far too much pain. Suffering destroys our bodies, ruins our minds, and smashes, excuse me, smashes our spirit. He continues by arguing that social science researchers have been unable to understand human suffering because it raises so many unsettling questions about the nature of humanity, meaning, and morality. Isn't it interesting to, man, I've been talking like I'm from Prineville lately. Isn't it interesting? (laughs) Sorry. I think it's my allergies or something. Okay. Isn't it interesting to hear a world's perspective on suffering? What a problem that it is. You know, dealing with this problem of pain, you know, it destroys our bodies. So it's bad. It ruins our mind. It smashes our spirit, they put in quotes. It's a great problem And it raises a lot of questions about the meaning of life and morality. You know, if you only have a worldview on life, then yes, suffering is a huge problem. And it does present many questions which we get to answer with the gospel. That we get to bring a biblical worldview into Romans 8 gives us this biblical worldview on suffering and that, yeah, while it's painful, God is actually working behind it for the good of the believer and for his own glory. As Americans, citizens of a nation that have been, it's been a prosperous nation, it's been a victorious nation. We have mottos such as, in God we trust and one nation under God. We've got songs, you know, that pompously shout out, God bless America, land that I love. And then not only being Americans, but having in addition the fact that we're Christians and that we've made stands for God, that we hold up his banner of purity and truth and moral values. We feel that our lives should now be lived in prosperity, comfort, luxury, ease, and just above all, just a freedom of suffering. I'm a Christian and I'm American, so I should just have a good life. I should live the Kenny Chesney life. 
That's what I want. Sunglasses, flip-flops, margaritas, and no shirt on. Guys, okay. We see here in Romans 8 that not only do we have the privilege of glory, but we also have this peculiar privilege of suffering with Jesus. And notice that it's not by ourselves that we suffer, but it's suffering, and you might underline it, it's suffering with him that we also may be glorified together with him. The sufferings with him and the glory is with him. So how selective we are in American Christianity. We like the glory, but we want to have no part in the sufferings. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, we have Paul, who kind of was the American of his day. I mean, he grew up as a Jew of Jews, a Benjamite, you know, uh, a, a guy that was a Pharisee, a guy that was zealous for the law, a guy that really had all the privileges of, Ju- of Judaism going for him, but he didn't have Jesus. And so here's what he has to say about all those privileges. He says, these things that were gained to me, These I've counted loss for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Listen to this. For whom I have suffered the loss of how much? All things. All things. Not only that, I count them as rubbish, as a big trash heap that I might gain Christ. You know, our brothers and sisters throughout the world, kind of outside us uh, Americans, are really experiencing what Paul experienced here, the loss of all things that they might know Christ. And, And I'm really not trying to bash on America. I love America. Thankful for America. Thankful for our religious freedom. So thankful. And yet I do just see a difference in Biblical worldviews in other countries where they just have a different life than us. They have almost a much more biblical life than we have. Uh, I was reading this morning on persecution.com about a Kumu Christian whose name is Bountshan Kanthvong. We have a picture of him, and I want to read a little bit of his story to you guys. Bountshan Kanthvong. Okay, I'm just going to call him Bountshan from this point on spent 13 years and eight months in prison in Laos for his faith. He was released early on this year. Before he came to faith in Christ, Bounchan was an assistant district governor for the communists. In 1965, Bounchan had been a soldier in Laos. He eventually became the assistant of an important official. He first encountered Christians when he was sent to study politics in Tongyong, in 1975. At the time, he didn't pay much attention, but later, as assistant district governor, he visited villages where there were Christians. He was intrigued by their worship, but these Christians were afraid of him because of his government position. Once, while staying with a family in a village, he heard of a Christian radio program supported by Voice of the Martyrs. He asked questions, but no one gave him any details. As a member of the government, Bauchan had permission to cross in and out of Thailand to conduct business. There in, uh, Bauch- uh, there in 
Baochun had permission, oh, excuse me, there in 1997, he sought out the man he'd heard speaking on the radio. The Christians were there afraid of him, and he was just as afraid. They would report him to the Leo government. But the man he sought was willing to meet with them. This man took him to a private room and explained Christ to him. The soldier was baptized that night and began to share the gospel wherever he went. The authorities warned him over and over to stop preaching. He was let go from his job, and he was arrested in June 8th, 1999, and sentenced to 15 years in prison. On February 2nd, 2012, he was released. uh, Yeah, no, this year. We're in 2012. He was released two years early. Voice of the Martyrs supported him and his family while he was in prison and provided medical care after his release. Uh, They conducted the following interview with Bound Chan shortly after his uh, his release. Uh, He began by sharing what happened immediately after his baptism. He said this, I went back to my home church and talked about Jesus. Many people would come. They wanted to become Christians. Soon the whole village would come. I didn't know how to lead them to Christ, so I went to meet with a Christian leader. I said, now that I've shared the gospel, many people want to become Christians. Please come and lead them to Christ. I don't know how to lead them. But he was scared and said, I can't go there. You shouldn't even do this. You could end up in prison. I responded by saying, oh, I worked with the government. I worked with the law. I know the law. that They can't put me in prison for more than two and a half years because I've done nothing wrong. Anybody catch that? Oh, only two and a half years. Come on, let's go tell people about Jesus. On June 8th, 1999, at 10 p.m., four of the church elders in my village were arrested by the police. They arrested me just 30 minutes later, and then they separated us into five small rooms. I wrote a message on a small paper for the other prisoners, telling them uh, to say that they didn't know anything. I said, give me all the blame. I will pay for this. And then you can go back and preach the gospel and lead the church. The next day, they were put in stocks and interrogated twice. The elders took my advice and denied everything. Two of them were in prison for six months before they were released. The other two were sentenced to eight years in prison, but they both died three years before their sentence was up. I was the last one left in the prison. In prison, I was always careful. I didn't eat the food that the prison or police gave me. I didn't drink the water they offered, afraid that it was poison. I didn't take any of their food. I had to be careful because I knew that my life was valuable to God and for his ministry. Many times the police came to interrogate me, saying smoothly, Have a glass of water. You have a sore throat and are thirsty. You even sound thirsty. Here, have a cup of water. I would say, No, thank you very much. I'm not thirsty. Many times they would offer me food and drink, but I didn't take it. I told my friends not to take it, but they disobeyed it. But they disobeyed. 20 days after I was arrested, they investigated me for five days before saying, you don't tell the truth. We know that you are trying to do bad things to the country. Then they put me into stocks. Stocks are a piece of wood and it's very big, quite big. The stocks spread my legs apart and they also put handcuffs on me. They were afraid that I would escape. They put me in handcuffs and even put smaller ones on my thumbs. Then they put me in a black room without food for seven days. One of the guard there secretly came to my room at 9 p.m. and gave me a little food. I survived because of that food, that little amount from that man. Voice of the Martyrs asked, did they give you anything to drink during those seven days? Nothing. That room was very dirty, and I got leprosy. 
Yes, like in the Bible, I couldn't scratch my body because of the handcuffs, but my wife sent me some chili peppers because they wouldn't give me any medicine. I didn't have anything except a little rice to eat and the chili peppers my wife gave me. I prayed to the Lord, ground the chili and use the chili to reduce the itchiness. I did that until the chili was gone and my skin seemed much better. When the chili was gone, the leprosy seemed healed, but a week later, a pain started in my eyes like something had bitten me. My wife came and asked for permission to take me to the hospital to treat my eyes, but the police said, he is the enemy of our country. Don't treat him. Let him be blind and let him die here. We won't allow you to go to the hospital. They interrogated me 16 times, asking me, why did you go to many villages and tell them about the name of Jesus? I answered, no, I didn't preach the name of Jesus. You're the law. You give us a channel for us to do this because we have the right to believe anything. I preached God. They were mad because I said the law gave me the right to tell about Jesus. In prison, I was locked in the room alone for more than one year. And during that time, I was never given a Bible. My family thought I was strange when I asked them to send me a Bible. I even asked the guard who brought me food if he would send my wife a message. I said, tell my wife, would you please help me bring me a Bible? I cannot live without the Bible. I have to read the Bible. Voice of the Martyrs asked, can you tell me a little bit what the prison looked like? Describe the dark room. It was built with big stones and with cement, but the door is metal with a little hole like a window. At 11.30 a.m., a guard would open the window and drop in the food. Then later at 3 p.m., the door was open and more food dropped in. Other than that, I didn't know what time of day it was. Thank God that the door was made of metal. There was a small hole from rust. I would stand up and put my nose on the hole and breathe fresh air. If someone tells, Voice of Martyr asks, if someone tells your story to Christians around the world, is there anything that you want to say to the people who prayed for you? And Bounchon says, I was in jail. I know how hard the life is. But I want to encourage believers in America to be strong in their faith. I know many Americans have not accepted Jesus Christ yet, but you have the freedom to proclaim Jesus and share the gospel. Go evangelize in the name of Jesus because you can. You have the right to read the Bible, to pray, and to go to church. Please do that. So a little bit of perspective to us of what other people are going through throughout the world. And we're going to hear a little more of his story just a little bit later today. But we see that the Christian life and suffering go hand in hand. And it's all part of the glory that's going to be revealed in us one day. And that glory in turn is going to be cast before the Lord as we cast our crowns and give glory and honor and worship to him. But it all comes not through the life of luxury, but through the life of suffering. As Alistair Begg said, what we so desperately want, which is triumph, might be the last thing we so desperately need. If you're in it for the glory, then you're in it for the suffering. If you're in it for the suffering, then you're in it for the glory. You can't separate them and you can't compare them. Interesting that in the midst of suffering, we experience the presence of God. In the midst of suffering, we cry out to God, Abba, Father. We cry out, Dad. But a challenge we face as Christians is how the world sees us in the midst of suffering. How does the world see us as sad? And are we teaching the world how to be sad? 
We as spirit-filled Christians need to be the best even at suffering. And Paul doesn't have a crazy notion that we won't suffer emotionally or psychologically or physically, but he tells us in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not that we won't suffer, it's that the suffering's not even comparable to how beautiful and wonderful and great the glory is. The Christian's life is not to be removed from a life of loss of limb and life, but it's just for a little while. As Paul says, if indeed for a little while you must suffer. With no pain, there's no gain. With no cross, there's no crown. With no suffering, there's no inheritance. With no gall, there's no glory. Timothy said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In Acts 14.22, just after Paul was stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra, And they went and picked him up. He probably did die. Most believe that he did die there. And and he was caught into heaven and saw things that he wasn't even going to tell anybody about. He was unworthy to talk about it. After he was stoned and left for dead outside of Lystra, they went and preached the gospel and made many disciples. Then went back to Lystra, the same town he was stoned in. Went to Iconium and Antioch. They would strengthen the souls of the disciples and exhort them to continue in the faith, saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. You know, if, if you plan on being a Christian in this life, and we're talking a biblical Christian, which there is no other, then may the Spirit help you to see the fact right now that you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer persecution. If you're going to make disciples, if you're going to open your mouth about Jesus in your community, in your circle of influence, people aren't going to like it. They didn't like Jesus. They're not going to like you. The persecution you face might be something different than the man we've been reading about today, but you will face persecution. Are you willing to count the cost of being a disciple through many tribulations, we're going to enter the kingdom of God. Philippians 1.29 says, For you, it's, to you it's been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his namesake. We love the believing part. We love the hearing about heaven and the eternal life. But then he gives us a task to go out and tell the world about him and how much he loves us. And we don't want part of that because we know it'll end in persecution. We know there will be some level of persecution. It's real today. Travis Smith is one of our missionaries from our church in Egypt. We support him monthly. You guys support him monthly. He wrote an email a couple weeks ago that he was in uh, Cairo at a missions conference with about 400 other people. And some of the people that Uh, that uh, were known within that circle, uh, people that probably would have been at that conference uh, had been killed. Uh, One lady killed by Yemeni's extremists, two teachers in Iraq killed. And they spent quite a long time there at that conference just weeping and telling stories of God's faithfulness in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the suffering. 
But Jesus tells us it's going to happen. The suffering's going to happen. If you're a son of God, you're going to suffer. If you're a son or a daughter, you're going to suffer. But there's encouragement. Again, we can look to the inheritance. We have a prize ahead of us. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus says to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down on my father, with my father on his throne. You guys catching that? Jesus suffered, entered into glory. We are his disciples. We're going to suffer and enter into glory. Revelation 21.7, he who overcomes will inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. In 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And so there's this splendor and sufferings both combined together with the sonship. Let's just look at this real quick. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that'll be revealed in us. The glory that comes to the overcomers. Even in the midst of persecution, I was just kind of writing down the evolution of suffering by persecution, you know, and some of you have seen this in a real mild form here in uh, America. But you tell people about Jesus and you may get light eye rolling, you know. You may have people make fun of your Bible, you may have someone just give a quick counter to what you say about Jesus and move on. But soon you'll probably find yourself being left out of groups or sensing outbursts verbally or hearing outbursts verbally against Jesus, against the message of the gospel. Some of you may find a loss of a job. I know there's people in this room that they've begun to talk about Jesus at their workplace and they were met with hostility even for the sake of conversation, you know, and it could end in the loss of a job. Threats, which lead to beatings, which could lead to death. As you read the accounts of the Acts of the Apostles in the book of Acts, or as you read about Bounchan here, you read that nothing is predictable in the evolution of persecution. Uh, it can happen in so many different ways. But the suffering that we read of here, is it limited to just persecution? Is that all that we're talking about here? It's all we've pretty much been talking about. But really within the context, if you're in Christ, any suffering that you go through, that as verse 29 says, conforming you into the image of the Son, it's working together for good and towards glory. Just as Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross, but he took on sinful flesh, became a man, and went through everything that we men and women go through. He suffered physical pain. He was hungry. He was thirsty. You know, he was picked on. You know, he was a man of sorrows, Isaiah 53 says, and he was acquainted with grief. And Hebrews tells us, man, we're so thankful he became a man because he can sympathize with us in our weakness. And so it's not just the death or that persecution that's the suffering that we partake of that will lead to glory, but it's any suffering. I went through our church directory a couple times this week and was just praying through it. And you know what? I don't think there was a single name in the church directory of someone who 
isn't going through suffering. And it just broke my heart. A lot of these things just, man, are painful, hurtful. You know, everything from fear and anxiety to sickness and pain. In fact, I think at the end of the service today, we're going to pray for Angela in the back. Angela, we love you so much. I'm just going to share, Angela has just severe lupus that the doctors haven't been able to beat or even do anything with despite rounds and rounds of chemo. And last week, Angela was admitted to the hospital with painful, almost leprous sores, black over her ears, her face, behind her eyes, in her nose, down her throat. Met the doctors just couldn't kill the pain with meds. For a week, she was in the hospital pretty much by herself. We have the privilege of keeping her kids at our house this week and then to just know the suffering that the kids are going through. I remember that suffering. My dad had cancer when I was in the fifth grade and I was separated from my family for months and months and months. And to just know the pain and the sorrow and the fear and to pray with the kids for Angela. We're thankful to have Angela out of the hospital. She's still in a lot of pain. We're going to pray for her in the midst of the suffering. We're going to have a time where people can come up and get prayer for suffering. Pain, sorrow. Many of you have had miscarriages. Many of you have lost children or the the death of a loved one. I think of Barry and Pam and Pam's parents dying recently and just the sorrow that's there. We're mourning with you, Pam. Marianne and Lynn and Kathy dying last week. I mean, to cry in the office with Marianne and Lynn and just no sorrow. It's, it's real, it's tangible, you know, to be in the hospital with Sean who's still suffering effects from a gunshot wound to the stomach. And is it, you know, oh, that'll get healed, you know, four years ago. When it, no, no. Still painful, painful stuff. Ambulances being called to homes within our church. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, man, when one part of the body suffers, don't we all suffer? Don't we all feel that? The betrayal, abandonment from spouses, divorce, sinning against one another, it's suffering. Even as Christians, we feel it. Hunger. Malnutrition, dirty water. So many nations, they don't have clean water to drink. Suffering from the elements of the heat or the cold, the wars that some of you in this room have seen. 72 million people dying in World War II. A hundred million people died in the Taiping Rebellion in China in 1864. Hundred million citizens of a country being bullied or being oppressed by their government. What we're going through suffering, through disasters, and we suffer when others in the body suffer. First, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, there's encouragement to all of that suffering that our light affliction, and Paul had just listed his light affliction, which meant Beatings and stonings and dying and shipwrecks and nights in cold out in the uh, nights out in the cold nakedness shame you know uh, being shipwrecked and he calls it light affliction that it's for a moment but it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. A couple chapters earlier in Second Corinthians one he says if we are afflicted it's for your comfort and your salvation which is effective for enduring the same sufferings that we ourselves suffer. 
If we are comforted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. You know, to be in the hospital and to look at Angela and to say, Angela, we know that God is working all these things out for your good because you love him and you're called according to his purpose. And I I don't know how, This does not look good. I don't know how, but I just know. I just know. And I think that, you know what? Maybe someone else is going to go through what Angela went through someday, and Angela is going to be able to comfort them with the comfort she's been comforted with. Man, God is working all things for the good. Douglas Moo says, A Christian's view on suffering in this life is is in a larger world-transcending context that while not alleviating its present intensity, transcends it with the confident expectation that suffering is not the final word. Isn't that awesome? Suffering is not the final word. There is glory for the Christian. 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 4, and we're going to close there. So Stuart, you can go ahead and, and come on up. 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 4 says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith is much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus. In 1 Peter 4, beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you will be glad with exceeding joy. There might be pain in the night, but joy comes with the morning. And the glory that we're going to have on that day in the presence of the Lord, it's not even comparable to the suffering. Octavius Winslow said, one day of glory erases an entire lifetime of affliction. We won't have time to read the rest of Bao Chan's story, but short, long story short, for 10 years, he was allowed to go out and to cut firewood. And eventually he got enough, you know, trust with the guards. They'd let him go out by himself. And one day he ran for three, he had three hours and he ran to his house, grabbed five Bibles, went, uh, grabbed five Bibles, went back and buried them. And he'd take a Bible back to him to the prison, try to hide it. It would get found. He'd go grab another one. And one day, all of the guards wanted to know what this Bible was about. And he was able to share the whole gospel story with the guards. The guards and the commander, uh, they all came to faith in Christ, but they all had to be replaced with new guards. And so we asked, man, how is God working all things together for good? Sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't. But we know, verse 28, and we'll get there more next week, we know God is working it. God is working it for good and for glory. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.